So already, the student center is home not just to the students' union, but to LSE careers, to the LSE faith center, to LSE residential services. It's a veritable one-stop shop to improve the student experience. I hope that all of the visitors, as well as all of the students here, will continue to get to enjoy that. Now, this is a good opportunity, therefore, to thank the donors that have contributed to this Sorcery Hawk Student Center. And I want to give special thanks to my good friend, Professor Sorcery Hawk, who, of course, is the person after whom this building is named. Now, let me turn now to tonight in particular. We are pleased to welcome back to LSE, Bronwyn Curtis. Bronwyn is one of our distinguished alumni. She graduated from LSE with an MSc in economics. And so it is a special pleasure for me as a professor of economics to be part of this event. But I say that not just because Bronwyn works in economics, I happen to be a professor of economics, because that would simply be a coincidence in the names of disciplines. The truth is, Bronwyn's is a name that you cannot miss when you come to London. You cannot miss Bronwyn's name in the arc of lively policy and intellectual discussion that crisscrosses London, and in fact that crisscrosses our financial, economic, business, and policy-making circles in the world more broadly. Bronwyn is truly someone that has taken out into the wider world the ideas and the passions that the best, most engaged economic thinking gives all of us. And in doing so, she has enriched our conversation within LSE and enriched our conversation outside. I won't read out to you all of Bronwyn's CV. That would just take up the whole evening. Most recently, Bronwyn was head of global research at HSBC. Before that, she was at Bloomberg, where she was managing editor. Other distinguished roles that she has played included being global head of currency and fixed income strategy at Deutsche Bank, chief economist at Nomura International. She has worked as consultant to the World Bank and to UNCTAD on projects in West Africa, in Asia, and Latin America. So London and global. Now, as you, I look forward to hearing a lot more about Bronwyn's work during the course of tonight's event. I'm going to turn to the conversation part of this event, but just to finish up the housekeeping, I'm required by law to say some of these things. Those who are regular attendees at LSE's public events, like this one, already know that we record these events. Provided no technical difficulties emerge, a podcast will be available soon. So when you raise your hands and ask questions later, you are part of our conversation. If you've got your mobile phone here, please turn it off to silent. You don't have to turn it off, just put it on silent because, as you also know, at LSE, we encourage tweeting at these public events. And Twitter users who want to tweet about tonight's conversation are encouraged to use the hashtag hash LSE saw sui. Now, after the discussion between Bronwyn and me, you will, I hope, participate in this conversation. You will have opportunity to put questions to our speaker. And then after that, 
I'm also pleased to invite all of you to stay and enjoy a drink with us because at the end of the event, we will have an open bar. There will be drinks and I think there will be munchies, although I can't guarantee on this last bit, certainly drinks. <laughs> if I could now get you to join me in welcoming Bronwyn Curtis back to LSE. Sorry to make you wait through all of that. By law, I was required to say some of those things, but I can now turn to the meat of this conversation. You are one of our most distinguished alumni. I want us to talk about the events and the ideas that have driven your trajectory, both before LSE, but also from LSE to HSBC and beyond, and to all the different places along the way. Let me note in passing that in London, you have, been, you have continued to be a good friend to the LSE. You are active in our, in our court activities. You are a governor of the school. And the arc of your career is one that is truly awesome. <laughs> you have gone from what many people might not know, a career in the performing arts, ballet in particular, through economics, through UK manufacturing, through a front row seat in financial markets in, most, in some of the most serious, exciting developments in London in the last however many decades. And then also in media, communicating to the outside world the ideas that, and the events that we have had to go through. So I wonder if I could get you, as you reflect upon this arc, this quite amazing trajectory, are there events or events along the way that you feel have been formative in the career path that you took? Well, Danny, first let me thank you for inviting me here today and thank you all for coming. I did actually think it might be just three people in the front row and that, that was about all. Um, unfortunately, my son couldn't make it this evening because he's, uh, he's down with flu. But I think the idea of describing me as awesome, he would be rolling about on the floor laughing, by the way. But then children are like that, aren't they? <laughs> So if I turn to Danny's question, I really have to think quite hard about it because some of it, I mean, there were obviously decisions along the way that I made that changed the path of what I did. And I think the, the first one probably, uh, actually the first one goes back a really long way. I only ever wanted to be a professional ballet dancer. Um, and I started dancing at the age of eight. I was on television as a child in the Nutcracker Suite at 10. And then, you know, and so on, you go through all the things. But one of the things I did was that I decided to, I wanted to be able to go to ballet every night of the week and dance. Um, and so I needed a school close to the ballet school. So I went along and did the exams for a creamed off academic school, a state 
State School in Melbourne. You can hear, those of you that um, in the know will hear that I still have my Australian accent after all these years. So I went through high school and at the very end I, I auditioned for the Australian Ballet School. I got in. Um, they took 10 out of about 350 that year. Um, it was a finishing school. You were already trained and the idea was after a year or 18 months you went into the Australian Ballet. And I think what I saw, because I was the only person at that ballet school that had um, finished high school, the others had spent a couple of years training full-time. So the first, I think the first big decision I made after being there for about eight or nine months was that I realised I was good, I was really good, but I wasn't going to be as good as Darcy Bustle. And for me, I think in the performing arts, if you're not really at the pinnacle, it, it, it's just, you know, it's so tough further down. And besides that, all my friends were off having a wonderful time at university. And I thought, I think I'd rather go there. And I chose to do economics with some mathematics. Um, Quite why, I'm not sure. I think one of my friends was doing it. And I also decided, and these things are important because I had a place at Melbourne University, which was, of course, the established university, but I went to La Trobe University in the first year it opened because I thought it would be more fun. And it was, and it was really interesting, and I loved it. So I think that was just making that switch and, and you know, economics was just, and I really enjoyed it. And I suppose the next thing was coming to the LSE. Look, the LSE changed my life because I really came, I was, I was not one of those students who'd sort of gone, well, you know, I'm going here. I sort of thought I needed my trip around Europe and I'd better do something a bit more. So achieve something rather than just go around Europe. So I applied to the LSE and I got in and the, the, couple of big attractions it was only one year and the other big attraction was that um, it was London and I was in London I wanted to be in London so it was terrific and I really enjoyed my year I have to say I was horrified when I arrived because my first question was where's the campus <laughs> and you know, I looked at this place and I thought where's the campus didn't have anything like this building I wandered up and down this building and it's just absolutely fabulous um, really you know I, I, I don't want to say students are sport they probably have what they should have had but we didn't have anything like that but we had a good time by the way um, I suppose then the next big decision I made was immediately after the LSE where I decided to stay a bit longer and I joined because I was going back to Australia I joined a consulting firm called Commodities Research Unit because they were consultants in the metal markets economic consultants in the metal markets uh, through an agency you wouldn't be allowed to have today called Graduate Girls. <laughs> they had graduate boys and graduate girls. I mean, it wasn't even men and women. <laughs> it were girls and yes. boys. Um, and so, because I, I was going back to Australia. So the, big, the next big change was, of course, I met a man, an Englishman. And I married an Englishman. And so all this time later, I'm still here. But I you think... See, Eng Englishmen are our strongest asset. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, he was certainly my strongest asset. And uh, so I stayed. 
and you know and then I had a couple of career changes and the next big thing was I, I, I worked there then I went to um, Master Foods M&M Mars best company I've ever worked for um, very egalitarian I thought you know there were there were no issues about women or anything like that it was it was great I, I thoroughly enjoyed it but you know, I thought it was time. Someone approached me from the city, and I made my first big career mistake, but I learned from it. Um, I went to the city as the chief economist of a company called Gill and Duffus, which at the time was the biggest um, commodities broker in the world. Ah, it was my first trip to the city of London in the old days, before Big Bang, before it opened up. I can only say it was a career mistake because it was just, you know, it was so old fashioned Mm. and I was taken out for lunch, you know, that that sort of thing, to to lunch the customers and Mm. so on. I didn't really, nobody took much notice of whether I was running the research department, Mm. which was quite small, Mm. very well. So I, I made a mistake and I left. I resigned. And then I went and worked with a consultancy in the soft, um, in, in soft commodities, cocoa, coffee, sugar, because I wrote a book on the cocoa market, a trader's guide, a, a cocoa, a trader's guide, a real bestseller, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> so that's what I did. And, and I think the, the, the next big change, and, and then I'll stop because actually, um, I suppose there was one more after that. The big change was then that, you know, commodity prices were very low. I felt I'd done everything I could do in commodity markets. And I applied to a job in a newspaper for um, Deutsche Bank Capital Markets. They liked me because I knew about derivatives. Mm. And I just wanted to get out into something that, that might grow. So it was a euro bond house, so we, we issued bonds and so on. I learned about bond markets and really spent most of my career in banking, except for my little change when I decided I was fed up with banking and I was approached by Bloomberg to come and run their television and radio in Europe. And my job was really to fix the content it wasn't really to, um, you know, to, but, but content was what I did. And at that stage, you all probably know Bloomberg now, and it's pretty good stuff out there. And at that time, it was so bad, people told me that I would... Um, <laughs> it, uh, my reputation would be irretrievably damaged because it was so terrible. And I said, and this is something I suppose that motivates me, my view on it was it's so bad it can only get better. And I told everyone I was going to overtake CNBC in terms of viewer numbers in Europe. And everyone laughed at me. But after five years, I did it. So that was sort of, you know, that was my career then moved into media. It was still content, though. It was still sort of economics. And, and, you know, after that, I went back into the city, into HSBC. So there were lots of changes that came along where I took a risk, Mm -hmm. I suppose. Um, yes, lots of changes is a bit of an <laughs> understatement. The, the challenges that you took on, moving, I mean, not just from Australia, Melbourne, in a milieu and an environment, in the performing arts that, you know, you were already at the top of the game on, to move into a completely different area. Technical economics, 
you know, practicing in the city, the cocoa market, uh, you know, the, the, the challenges and the changes that you've taken on are striking. I mean, they just they just really show you know, the the tenacity with which you take on new things and make a make a success of them. Um, I wonder if I could get you, as you you know, as you describe this very very interesting trajectory, also reflect a bit on the role that you feel LSE has played for you in this. Because, you know, you, you said, okay, well, I'm going to come to Europe, and like the Americans say, LSE means let's see Europe. So then you came here, <laughs> I didn't know that, but yes, that's what I did so too. <laughs> you came here and you looked around, but obviously the things that you got out of your LSE education were things that then, you know, moved you in a trajectory completely different from... Let's do ballet. Let's go see Europe. Let's do. Oh, let's try out different things. So, were there teacher teachers? Were there events at LSE? How did LSE play a role in the development of Bronwyn? Well, first of all, I mean Richard Layard was. I'm old enough that Richard Layard was my tutor, and I have to say, LSE got me my first job, and probably my second job and my third job. I mean, it really mattered. I mean, if I'd been at a degree from La Trobe University, it was probably not going to do it. You know, it just made a difference in terms of the quality and so on. And I think all through my career, I, I sort of came back to it because I, when I was at Deutsche Bank, I came along to a dinner of the financial markets group. And it was, I think I was standing in for someone at the time. And I sat next to Richard Layard. And he said, I know you. <laughs> and I said, yes, Richard, you taught me many, many moons ago. And actually, he got me involved in the financial markets group to start with. So I spent a lot of time with the people in the financial markets group. I, was, I was, became Deutsche Bank's representative on the, on the group. And it was really interesting to see, you know, how financial markets interacted with economics and, and, and so on. And so that was really my introduction back into the LSE and I learned a lot from the financial markets group and then of course LSE had just started really around just a little bit later than that they started to think oh actually we've got all these alumni around the world we should really um, catch up with them and tap into them and so in fact then they invited me to be on a little committee and then a slightly bigger committee and a bigger committee, and I ended up on the council. But, you know, you do feel you want to give something back because it made a huge difference to me. If I hadn't come to London and come to the LSE, first of all, I wouldn't have experienced London and Europe, which I just love living here, by the way. Um, and also, I probably wouldn't have had anything like the sort of career that I have had. And the economics from the LSE has really been the core of it. I mean... <clears throat> Most people might already know as well that the financial markets group that we're talking about here was started by, well, none other than Mervyn King and Charles Goodhart. And it was part of a group of, you know, initiatives at LSE to undertake outreach, public engagement, to go out there and take the best ideas that we produce in academic journals and in thinking, classroom thinking, and engage with the world, engage with people like yourself who are actually putting ideas into practice. And it's, of course, been a very fruitful kind of engagement. It's something that, 
you know, we at LSE, we take very seriously. We like the idea that, you know, LSE, yes, it's a university, and yes, it has no campus, but on the other hand, it sits right here in London. It is like two doors away from some of the most powerful policy-making thought leaders in the world. And it's this kind of public engagement with the milieu around us that I think LSE has a real special expertise, has a real comparative advantage in. It's interesting because I went to a reunion, I think, of... I hate to say it, it might have been 30 years of the financial markets group. Maybe it was only 20. <laughs> I I, hope. I'm, sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure it was barely five. Well, you're barely five. And actually, Mervyn King spoke, mm. um, and you know, it was all sort of off the record, but all of the people, I mean, the quality of the people that you saw sitting around the room. But one of the things, and one of the big changes I have seen, and it's, it's in the news a lot now, he talked about the changes on the regulatory side hmm. in finance and, and so on and how with the opening up of Big Bang in 1985 or 1986 mm-hmm. in, in the City of London with the deregulation and how, you know, everything was, you know, you, honestly, the things, you know, front running wasn't a problem. When I first joined Deutsche Bank, for example, it wasn't illegal in Germany to front run your clients, so to buy ahead of your clients. Mm. And, and he was just pointing out how much regulation has changed mm. and developed. Mm. Um, I would say in the last five years, it's probably done as much as it had in the previous 20, mm. just because, you know, we've had a huge financial crisis and, and it's probably gone too far, in my opinion. But mm. It's just, he was laying it out in, in a line and I thought, wow, I've been here through all of this huge change in the financial markets globally because it wasn't just London, you know, the rest of the world was changing as well and I think that's been one of the most interesting things. I'm, I'm very glad to hear the way you're describing this. There, there's sometimes an impression out there from people who aren't so friendly towards the LSE who say that you know, LSE has become a happy hunting ground for new hires by investment banks, that all we do is provide spreadsheet fodder for investment banks to recycle through, and that's why we put our best-trained graduates into. But what you're pointing out is that you know, the fact that they do this and engage with the world in this way also makes them part of an unfolding economic and financial history. The changes that have occurred in the city, you know, that you're describing, Big Bang, and then afterwards, the Asian financial crisis, 2008 global financial crisis, the changes in perception on regulation. This is something that at LSE, we are better placed to understand better than anybody else. Because we've actually got people doing the groundwork, being the foot soldiers in all of these changes. You sat through... You had a front row seat in all of this. You saw, the big, you saw Big Bang unfolding in, in Britain. You saw the change of policy making through uh, the, labor, the, labor, the new Labour government in 1997, giving independence to the Bank of England. You saw the changes in international financial markets as Asia imploded from the movements of hot money, short-term hot money. I wonder, you know, if, as, as you reflect on this and you think about how LSE has played a role in 
in thinking about participating in all these changes. It must be very exciting. It's, it's being a part of history in a way that few other places and few other graduates can claim. I think that's right, and also because it's so international. Mm. I mean, one of the most fantastic things now, of course, and you've done a lot of work on this, Danny, is, is the move in you know, the global economy much further towards Asia and, and the way things have um, developed. I mean, since the global financial... Since, not the global financial crisis, since the Asian crisis. I mean, in the Asian crisis, I can remember it just being dire. I mean, the, the countries were really struggling. Um, it was just, you know, because we, we sat in the developed world, you didn't see it as much, but it must have been just as bad as the global financial crisis. But the fact is they learned a lot of lessons and they, they came back and they came back with a vengeance. And what the LSE has done so well is it's always had a huge international group of people. And so you get that mixing here that then you can take out again, and not just to investment banks. Mm -hmm. Also, you've got to, of course, as you know, there's a market for everything and, and a price for everything. And, you know, investment banking is one of the places. I mean, when you're in the city of London, it's the biggest financial centre in the world um, with the biggest banks in it. Of course, you'll get a lot of people going there. But I think I, I actually had... Um, had lunch with two of my colleagues um, from La Trobe. Mm. But one of them had come here and gone to Oxford mm. and the other one had risen in politics um, in Malaysia. Mm. And we sat there and he's now, one of them is now the chairman of Syme Derby and the other one actually ran all the foreign exchange um, and how they managed it during the Asian currency crisis in Singapore. Mm. So he ran the currency during that time. Mm. And we were just talking about, you know, how, where economics has really taken us. Mm. And I think that is one of the... And both of those, I mean, this is not the LSE, this was Australia. Both of them came to university in Australia on the Colombo plan. Mm. So it was sort of Australia starting to bring in international students mm. But the LSE has always had that. Yeah, the, the cosmopolitanism of our student body at LSE. I, <clears throat> I like to joke that you know, we have students at LSE from more economies, more places, than the IMF actually reports financial statistics on. <laughs> that we are far more international than many of these other international institutions are. And, and we have... Although, you know, because it's something that happens, it's, it's every day we encounter it. Every day we walk along Houghton Street and we see a dozen languages spoken just around us. We don't appreciate all the time how important something like that is for giving us, the scholars here and the students here, a global perspective on these kinds of developments. You know, we could be the most abstract, most technical, you know, academic department in the world, but we would have lost a lot of it if we don't reach out into the world, into real-world practice, the way that our graduates, like yourself and others now, reach out to the rest of the world and engage in real practice. Now, you know, this circle of, of fluctuating ideas also makes me want to ask. You know, you've sat through, as we said, Big Bang, unification of Germany, Asian financial crisis, global financial crisis, and the ups and downs in financial markets that you've seen. 
you know, gives you a perspective that few other people have. So I would like you to, to take that perspective and maybe do a little bit of present introspection and maybe a little, of, little bit of looking forward into the future. So today, when we look around, what do you think the really important ideas that are imminently on the breakthrough to ideas that will transform the way we do things? Oh, gosh, if I knew that, I'd be um, writing it all up and hoping to get a Nobel well, that's Prize. Why, you know, that's why we're recording press. this on podcast so that you know, we will have things to work on afterwards. I think for me right now, actually, I find it really difficult as I would call myself a financial markets economist in, in many ways. So I find it really difficult to decide where we're going and, and I'll tell you why, because to get out of the big financial crisis we've had, all of these new things were put in place, you know, asset purchases, quantitative easing, interest rates at zero, um, all sorts of things like that. And although we've now started to see in the US that they're starting to withdraw some of that um, with the taper, it's still very slow. But the economic growth is very slow as well. So instead of seeing after most, you know, it, it, you have recession, boom, bust. Well, not quite boom, bust, but, you know, that sort of thing. But this time it's really it's sort of almost sideways and slightly up with all of that stimulus still there. And of course, that. That is worrying because, you know, when you think about it, the U.S. was the driver, the consumer of last resort. And actually, now they're not. Their current account deficit is shrinking, which is, you know, so elsewhere in the world are consumers of last resort. And, of course, it's their, their current account deficit is shrinking. Others are rising. Well, of course, the U.K. Um, is rising quite rapidly. It's only a small part. But so... I sort of look at it and I think, oh, you know, what happens now? Because, yes, we've had recovery, but it's really slow. And, and countries and policymakers have been very damaged. And when that happens, they tend to be very, very risk averse. Mm. And so they won't make big decisions again because you know, people do get you know, they, they just draw back. Mm. So I do worry about what's going on, I particularly, you know, just in terms of consequences and whether it's a consequence of the crisis or not, I'm not sure. But things like deflation, I mean, you look at inflation in the US and it's really very low by their standards. You look at inflation in Europe and we have, you know, the head of the European Central Bank talking about, you know, we'll do whatever it takes again, um, you know, if we need to, to get inflation higher. And I suppose this running through my mind is everyone sort of seems quite happy in the UK that inflation's sort of down a bit. Mm. It's come down just about to, you know, to target and so on. And I sort of wonder if that's deflation in UK terms. In other words, you know, should it, would it be better if it was a little bit higher? Now, everyone hates inflation here because it's always been too high. But it's that sort of mm. thing. Mm. And at the same time, you have China on the other side of the world. And it's not just the US and China, mm. but you have China on the other side of the world. And it's trying to change from an export-based economy to a consumer-driven economy. And we all know that making structural changes in any economy is difficult. 
But it's an awful lot easier if you're the size of Finland than mm. if you're the size of China. Mm. And what they do has huge consequences for the rest of the world. And you just look at Australia. You know, it's, it's, it's the, the Australian dollar's finally, finally going down mm. because, you know, what about exports? And mm. all they're exporting, really, uh, it, 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 the only thing is mining. Mm. Mm. So it, it, it affects everybody. Mm. The... <clears throat> You know, this, this overview of the global economy is, is, is much appreciated. It's, it's magisterial, as I expect it would be. You've given us you know, a, a really concise description of the problems that we face in the West, the problems that the East faces, problems of engagement globally more generally. There, there is a theme out there that says that this, the way the global economy has changed is a permanent shift that there are shifts in the centers of economic power, shifts in the, center of in the centers of political power, and that there is a, a meme, if you will, out there that says that in the midst of all these shifts, our traditional notions of global governance, of world leadership, are, are coming under threat, are coming under challenge. And part of the reason that the world is in such a funk, as it were, is that we haven't figured out the new schemes of global governance. We haven't figured out the new schemes of, of, uh, of leadership. Now, LSE and London have really interesting and critical roles to play in all of this because we are not the global hegemon. That's mm. the United States. We're not the traditional hegemon. We do not have to rely on, cling to traditional patterns of world leadership, we're quite open and receptive to the emerging powers. We're quite happy to let Malaysia's, your friends from Malaysia who manage the pension funds, invest half a billion, dollar, half a billion pounds in, in London's Battersea Power Station to build a residential yes. estate that will bring returns of up to you know, 8 billion pounds, if, if we read those figures, to the London economy. And all of that, so we're very open to this. And one of the, the nice attractions about being in London is that we don't have an entrenched position we're trying to defend. We're just open to how ideas and events will unfold, and we want to make the world a better place, whether it's being driven by a traditional global hegemon like the United States or the rising powers like the East, like China. We want to be of help, and we want to have a, a role to play as the world unfolds in this way. And, and being in the position that you are, you, know, you are part of that leadership, intellectual and policy leadership in London. But you are also a leader in, you know, in, in domains that one might think of as being a, a, a level underneath that. Women's leadership, women's corporate leadership. You know, the way that you describe how after you left LSE, you went into, what was it, a graduate girls? No, I went to an agency called Graduate, graduate girls. girls Agency, which would not be tolerated by any stretch of the imagination now. And you've gone from, from that to actually telling other people, men included, what it is that they need to do. Now, are there lessons from this in terms of leadership, the will to succeed, that you would like to, to tell our students about, to tell people about? Yes. I mean, I didn't really... I have to say, I didn't really think about much about being a woman in mm. business, actually, until I took that job in the city, mm. which I left, because I realised it was it's a very male-dominated mm. environment. Look, I think I had some advantages, which... Um, I, look, I think being a woman is a huge advantage. 
Um, and it can be a huge disadvantage. But the advantage is that no one usually forgets you. <laughs> that can be good and bad, as you can imagine. Um, but I also, I came, well, the thing about London, it is a melting pot. And it was very old-fashioned, though, when I first started working, as you can tell. And so one of the advantages I felt I had in the beginning was that when I opened my mouth, you couldn't tell what sort of education I'd had or what sort of background I'd come from. Um, now, I think Britain's changed a lot. There's still a little bit of this around. But I also went and worked, first of all, for a small consultancy, and then I worked for a big American company. Mm. And it was just the time when they were you know, doing affirmative action in the US and promoting women in the US a lot more. And so I got a lot of that. And I just thought, well, I'm equal. I'll just go out there and do it. But I, I suppose also, because I mostly worked with men, I looked around the room and it didn't really matter. I, I only saw men. I didn't see me. So, you know, I didn't notice I was one. Um, you know, from time to time it becomes an issue. But I was... Um, I had to review Sheryl Sandberg's book recently, um, Lean In. Now, she's the COO, as you probably all know, of, of Facebook. And I thought, oh, well, another woman writing another woman, another book <laughs> but, on this subject, because it is there. But one of the things that she pointed out, which I thought, two things which I thought were really interesting... One was about perceptions about women, men and women doing the same thing. So she took a Harvard, she wrote up a Harvard Business School case where about Heidi, a woman entrepreneur who'd had a very successful company. And actually Columbia University and New York Business School, I think it was, I may not have the details quite right here, took this um, case study and gave it to their students but for one group of students, male, female, black, white, green, um, they, it was uh, Heidi, the entrepreneur, and the other one was Howard, the entrepreneur. And that was the only change they made, was just the name change. And then they asked the students what they thought about them. Well, they thought that she was aggressive and not something they, someone they'd want to work for. And he was assertive and, and someone they'd like to work for. Now, I'm summarising it, but I think those perceptions still exist. And, and I think that, that, is, that makes things more difficult. Because, you know, if you're too soft, it's, you don't get anywhere. If you're too tough, you don't get anywhere either. So getting that right and getting that balance right is, is important. And she talks about being relentlessly pleasant. <laughs> and I thought, I wish I'd read that earlier. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Now, I would like to open this up to questions from the audience. But before I do that, I wonder if I could invite you to leave maybe, you know, from the discussion that we've had, if you had to give advice to one of our graduating students, telling them, you know, what it is that they should look out for. Relentlessly pleasant is, is a possible piece of advice. Uh, start out as a ballerina <laughs> who is top of the game but not truly, truly spectacular, which actually I disbelieve. I do think you were spectacular. You just decided to go do something else. Um, is, there, is there a piece of advice, a takeaway 
that you would tell the students in the audience? I, I think it's always there's another way. You know, just because, I don't know, you didn't get the job at Goldman Sachs. I'm not saying you want a job at Goldman Sachs, actually. But, but just because you didn't do, get the first thing, you know, you had this in mind. You know, I never think that's a problem. You know, we, we don't always succeed in what we want. And, you know, there's always another way. And often another door opens up. So just, just look around you. And, and look for something else. And I suppose in my career, that's what I did. You know, I, I looked, I, you know, I wanted to succeed. Um, uh, one thing I would say is I, I was only walked over once in my career um, when somewhere, and I thought, I'm not, I'm not going to be walked over again. So you mm. have to be, I'm not saying strident, but mm. you have to sort of, so, so don't, you know, you don't have to be sort of, self-serving but just I would say always look for another open door and they happen talk to people go out and talk to people go, you know all sorts of people who are in jobs anyone you know a father's friend anything and I think that always helps because it gives you a better picture of what's um what's going on you have a huge number of lectures here I think one of the things as I went around this building I thought was marvellous I'm looking at all of the at the events that the LSE now puts on and you can get to see people talking about all sorts of different things and I think taking advantage of that but it that's the thing if you if you hit a roadblock don't keep hitting your head against the glass ceiling, you know, mm. go sideways and you can break through it somewhere else. And I'm not just, I'm talking about men and women here because mm. we all come to these things. It's mm. not just, just women, but, you know, I, I think there's, there's always another way. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, the only thing I want to be was a dancer and realise that perhaps this wasn't quite what I really wanted to do and so I took another way. Mm. Now, that was a big change. But when I changed from banking into media and went to Bloomberg, mm. that was a huge change and it was hugely risky and I might have failed. But, you know, if I'd failed, there would have been something else. You know, I just... It, it, you don't... I, th I think it's that sort of... I've tried everything and I've written a thousand letters and I still can't find anything. I, I, I think there is always something. So that's what I would say. Okay. Thank you. That's a, that's a very optimistic take on the things that we do with our personal lives. And I like to... You know, I, I like to think about that in... And set that against, you know, your overview of the global economy, the desperate straits that we're in in different parts of the world... Really, the world should think more about doing things the way that you've just described. That we've hit our head against tapering and you know excessive volatility in emerging markets. We should think about alternatives, given that we've tried these sufficiently already. What I would like to do at this point is to open up the discussion and the conversation to the floor, if I may. I believe. Are there microphones that are going around? Okay. So if you could, perhaps we could take two or three questions in a row before, uh, before we, we, we let you at them. So if you have a question, if you could just indicate that, and then I'll get a microphone to you, but just wait a second until that happens. So, so up here in front, up here in front. Um, is it on? Hello? Yeah. Okay, so I was just wondering about when you were working in the city before the Big Bang, 
and you described it as maybe a, a mistake. Is that the one? Um, I was wondering kind of what your experience was and like, did you find that it was the inefficiencies that was uh, what was frustrating or what did, what did you find difficult about it? Thank you. And then in back. Um, um, my question was somewhat similar, but uh, I was just wondering that you, when you described your career path and move, you entered from research and then moved your way through. Do you think that research and your role as a female helped you define a niche for yourself? Um, and you are probably the third female from the city who has said exactly the same thing. And I'm, I'm myself now intrigued. I'm a woman from the East, but I used to think that, but now I rather, I mean, I just wonder, it's, it's the same. It's, it's, it's a one world with one rule. Could you please elaborate on those two things? Thank you. Okay, so just so, just so I'm, that I and the audience is clear, when you say, Bronwyn said the one thing, what's the one thing that you're thinking of? Well, uh, the one rule and the one thing which I'm saying is that this is still a world with prejudices, a world where there are defined rules and sets, and where though we talk of emancipation, though we talk of liber uh, liberal thought, but yet we are deeply entrenched into the same uh, uh, patterns of the past. I don't want to use the word patriarchal, but the tribal society used to be patriarchal. I respect my female and the male colleagues that I know of, but that shows a degree of weakness uh, on the part of the societies to evolve and change. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. Can we take one more question before I turn over? Okay, I'm heavily weighted to this side, which is fine. But if no one, but if someone puts your hand up on this side, you immediately have the floor. You know. All right. So we'll take uh, the gentleman up in front here, and then I'll pick you up on the next round, if I may. Um, I would like to ask you, like. Uh, you talk about inflation in Europe, like, and how people are complaining loud nowadays. Like, all the countries in Europe are complaining about low inflation. Like, like we've been taught that like European Central Bank is is been issued, is, has been like the constitution was signed by all the countries, and it says that European Central Bank should maintain like one of the, the main, the first goal of it is maintaining low inflation. So, I would like to know what's your thought about like countries complaining what they themselves have signed. Like, would like to know what you think about it. Okay, Thanks. thank you. All right, Bronwyn, can I ask you to address these three questions? The two of them having to do with the inefficiencies, working as a woman in the city, the patriarchal nature of the society, and then what it is that, what, just what is going on in Europe with countries turning back on things that they've already signed up to. <laughs> okay, um, when I talked about the city when I first went there, I, mean, I was the first female chief economist um, in the city of London. I think I'm still the only woman who's been chief economist of an investment bank, which is, is not, not good. But that aside, I think when I first went there, it really was you know, incredibly old-fashioned. They were not used to having we women in senior positions. 
and it was there weren't any I, I didn't see any other senior women so I think that it was a real culture shock for me it wasn't what I'd experienced you know previously so and it certainly wasn't what I experienced in Australia either so it was a big shock to me now I think it's changed enormously by the way I think that that that's that's gone there are women, senior women, all over the city. I don't think it's that difficult to get to the top in the city now. I think that they have every opportunity. I think firms now are looking to promote their women. Now, you, there have to be enough women coming through to get women to the top. And, of course, that can take 10 or 20 years. But I don't think it's as difficult now as it was um, and I, I just think that, you know, it, it's all, you know, we, we can always find something to complain about in these things. So I think from a, from a city point of view, I do think that, um, you know, men and women are different and still regarded as different. And in, you know, when I talked about Cheryl Sandberg's uh, example, it wasn't her example, actually, but the Harvard Business School um, example, I think there still is a lot of that where, you know, very successful women, sometimes because they're visible and they, they sort of stand out sometimes, I think that, that you know, it, it, it is more difficult. People find it more difficult. And often they've been used to working for men. I mean, I had my first female boss very quite early in my career and actually it was fine and, it, and I think it helped me. But I'm, I still think... A lot of the prejudices overall are there. Some of them get buried now because of, you know, sort of companies trying to get the women up and through. But I think it's, it's improved a lot and it's improving all the time. And actually, you know, these firms, all of these global firms, because most firms are global now, need people from the Middle East, from Asia, from Eastern Europe, Latin America. So I think there are more opportunities now than there were before. So I hope that's answered your question. I'm not sure. On the low inflation, I mean, the, the um, European Central Bank is supposed to, well, is, uh, they try to aim for 2% inflation. Now, I think the last number I saw was 0.8% up from 0.7%. And that's very low. And what you get worried about is that you end up in the situation like Japan, where you know you can't you can't actually get inflation high, which is why we've got Abenomics now, you know, trying to pump money in to try and get inflation high. So, I think that you know low inflation, but not disinflation or deflation. I think is what what we're looking at, and and the concern is that it may be getting too low. So they've signed up to it and that's no problem. In fact, they're just trying to keep it up there now. Um, and of course, you have to remember when the European Central Bank was set up, it was modelled on the Bundesbank. And the Bundesbank, because Germany had hyperinflation, you know, during the wars and, and that sort of thing, they are always the Germans have been incredibly worried about inflation and the Bundesbank spent a lot of time they'd always talk about keeping inflation you know steady and low and and that's what's gone into the European Central Bank so that's the sort of central policy 
But I think what we're ta- what I'm really talking about now is: is it too low, and will it go lower? Need to may need the central European Central Bank may need to take steps, which may be more quantitative easing from yet another part of the world, which you know does concern me, um, to get inflation a bit higher. And of course, with all the fiscal tightening going on, that makes it worse. <clears throat> One of the Comments from the questions also had to do with whether it was one world, this 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 hypothesized patriarchal society, which you've spoken to already. But there was also a comment about whether the West and the East might be different in this regard. And you know, the the, the East is actually quite peculiar in this dimension, in that it's quite polarized. The this year, the World Economic Forum and the World Bank continue to. Criticize many economies out east that they are uncompetitive because they have not yet fully brought women into full participation in labor markets. I suppose that refers a little bit to your 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 description of there being a patriarchal attitude in the world. At the same time, however, before Mrs. Thatcher became prime minister in this country, Mrs. Bandaranaike had become prime minister in Sri Lanka. Mrs. Indira Gandhi had become prime minister in India before Janet Yellen was celebrated as, you know, uh, the the you know chairman of the board of governors of Federal Reserve System in the United States. And a woman, Governor Tansri Zeti, had been central bank governor in Malaysia for a long time, for decades. She's been routinely celebrated as one of the most outstanding central bank governors in the world. Uh, Malaysia, which was criticised for not allowing Sufficient female participation at the same time has not just Governor Tansri Zeti, but also has Tansri Zarina, who for a long time headed up the Securities Commission. So in the the East is peculiar in this regard. If we if we think about this in terms of the kind of in the kind of terms that we're having this discussion now. Okay. Um, other questions. So up here. Can I just those, add? Yeah. Uh, I do think the women that get to the top, like Janet Yellen and, you know, uh, really have to be that much better than the men, often. They just have to be, because to get their careers right to the top. But I think that's changing. I think there's a lot more, a lot of younger women coming through. But I think at that time... Okay, that's well taken, yes. Okay, so we have a question up here. Hi. Sorry, I was just wondering, as someone who has a lot of experience in the commodities market, how do you think that what's going on in Ukraine will affect oil prices and all of their natural resources? <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, any other questions yeah. on this round? Yes, over here. Um, you've talked about global uh, the need for global governance in the um, financial market, reflecting upon the financial crisis. Um, I just wish um, to ask whether you may want to comment on the work of the IMF and the World Bank, and um, whether they've done enough as a global governance, and what they could have done more to uh, uh, to the current situation. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, and then finally, on this round. Hi. Um, I have a question with regard to careers being very diverse, and I would like to know how many of the career changes were 
made very consciously and how many of the decisions were rather um, by accident, like the chances came up to you than you really going out and searching for new opportunities? Thank you. Okay, a very set of questions on this round. Ukraine and the fuels market. Yes. Well, <laughs> you can see what happened today where you know, oil prices have gone up. I mean, anything, what financial markets, whether it's commodity markets or, um, you know, just generally in financial markets, they hate uncertainty. And, of course, where Russia is involved, because, you know, it's a huge oil producer, has huge pipelines going through the Ukraine to Europe, you know, it, any disruption to oil supplies... You know, it, or, and it's not so much the disruption, it's the anticipated disruption is, is what forces prices high. Actually, with commodity markets, as with most financial markets, it's made by expectations. Prices are made by expectations. So it's the expectation that you may have a roadblock, a, a pipeline block, um, a war, um, whatever it is, that it's the expectation of that which makes the price change. I mean, if you look at what happened today, oil prices went up, the Russian stock market went down, um, bond yields went down, because particularly in places like the US and the UK, you know, safe havens, uh, Swiss franc went up, um, you know, all, all of that happened at the same time. So it's not just oil prices that will be affected. I mean, the oil market is another whole conversation, which I won't get into, but with fracking in the US and with the changes in, you know, the power structures in terms of, you know, if they can be self-sufficient in oil, then how does that change the, the power sort of structures in, in the rest of the world. So it's not just moves to the east and all of that sort of thing. You have other big moves. And I think for oil, that's, that's one of the biggest things happening. The global financial crisis and global governance, let me just talk about this generally, because <laughs> what's really happened after the crisis is that it's all very well saying we knew it need a new structure for the global financial markets. Financial markets are not stable. You know, it's an unstable situation always. So it, it's very difficult to put things around it. And some of the things I see happening now to, to, to make it work better. So let me give you an example in banking. One of the things that's happening is that you know, they're putting huge restrictions, not in every country, in some countries, on what banks can do. So they have to, what we call, hold more risk-weighted assets, so more high-quality assets like government bonds um, against any risky things that they do. And what that will mean, I mean, I call it the risk of, of regulation, um, is that, you know, if we had another big crash the oil price went through the roof, something else went through the floor. You know, what used to happen is the people in the financial markets, there would always be someone who had deep enough pockets to go and buy things cheap, and that would bring it back. Of course, if you're very restricted on how much you can buy or sell, 
it means that you can't actually, that self-regulating mechanism isn't there as much. So countries are, so so that's one of the problems I see with, with regulation, risk of regulation. But I think the other thing is countries have looked inward after the global financial crisis. They're looking nationally rather than internationally. Um, and, and actually financial flows, you know, you're sort of seeing trade flows contract a bit. You're seeing things happen like that. So I think it's very difficult to do something globally because everyone thinks, every country thinks about themselves. And just finally on, uh, yes, who asked the question about chances? Yes, Chances. Something came along and you decide to take it or not. Um, I did, did sometimes talk to people, but, but usually things came along and I made a decision to take it or not. Um, that's tended to be where jobs came from. Bloomberg approached me. I would never have thought of approaching them for a job, you know, never crossed my mind. In fact, they've been approaching me for six months and I thought they were trying to sell me another Bloomberg terminal, so I didn't talk to them. <laughs> but, but that wasn't quite what they had in mind. So, yes, it's, um, it's, it's things come along and you take the chance. And that's why I mean you don't always get it right. But, you know, a few mistakes along the way, you learn from those too. I wonder if I could press you a bit on the Ukraine fuels discussion. Um, there are some observers, not all, some observers of the, the global market for fuels note that the U.S. fracking, the development of what they call shale gas and tight oil, the, the United States is converging towards self-sufficiency in energy. It moves, removes a huge source of demand on global markets if it does that. And that, together with the fear that many of the oil-producing countries have, the Gulf countries have, that you know, the, the world is past the stage when hydrocarbons matter importantly anymore. One of the things that the Gulf economies are trying to do is to rapidly get out of the oil-producing business. They want to be in semiconductors. They want to be in tourism. They want to be in finance. They want to be anywhere except the source of wealth that sits underneath them because they have a view that all of this is going to go away. Long before we get past where we have no oil, we're going to get past where oil isn't worth very much anymore. Now, one of the things that the Ukraine incident is showing, you know, tragic that it is, I mean, the tragedy in terms of human lives mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the unfolding for the consequences of society there are, are huge and, and, and great tragedy. On top of that, we can also use this, we should also be using this to think about the nature of the global economy moving forwards. Okay? Despite moves on the demand side and the supply side that might argue that fuel, hydrocarbons, the things that we get out of Ukraine in terms of natural gas aren't that important anymore. Actually, they are. We see these potential disruptions and then the fuel markets just go crazy. Now, that might be driven by sentiment and people's views rather than by underlying structure of production. But it tells us that we are nowhere near, we're nowhere you know, moving, near moving away from this kind of oil-dependent, hydrocarbon-dependent global economy. Well, I think some of it is driven by sentiment. But you're absolutely right. We are still dependent on oil. Um, There are some big changes taking place in the world, though. And that is, uh, I I, um, sat through a presentation by the BP 
chief economist. So he was talking about the changes in the flows of oil mm. in the world. Mm. So instead of it used to be that, you know, everything came from, well, not everything. I've got to be careful here. <laughs> but, you know, from the, the, the OPEC-type countries mm. and the countries in there, and so those flows were there. What you saw in the global financial crisis is that, and it would come into Europe mm. and the US mm. and so on, you know, China and so on. But during the global financial crisis, because Europe was hit so hard, actually you had a lot of that fuel just bypassing Europe. So although demand in general was, say, I don't know, an increase of 3%, actually when you broke it down, it was completely different to what it had been three or four years earlier. So the demand side is changing a lot as well. Mm. So there's a tremendous amount of change going on in the oil markets, which, and, and of course there's huge amounts of gas that everyone is trying mm. to um, get out and use and so on. So there's a lot of change going on and I think at the moment we all find it quite difficult to work out what the supply-demand situation really is, which is why we saw that knee-jerk reaction from Ukraine. From Ukraine. And of course, Europe is still terribly dependent yes, on oil. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, can I have another round of questions? So, in back first. Thank you. First, I want to thank you, Mrs. Curtis, for coming to talk with us. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, my question is kind of regarding the changes. When you made a change, did you ever second guess uh, the choice you made? And how were you ensured that you were on indeed the right path? Um, to your goal. Thank you. <laughs> then the gentleman in front. Uh, I'd like to thank the LSE and also the alumnites uh, for coming for these kind of public events. It's not only for the graduates, but it's also it's great for those people with 10, 15, 20 years experience and even more in terms of learning new skills and acquiring new skills and insights. Um, like to get your views as to the aging population mm. and the need to you know to kind of um, work longer, whether the city and also in the academia where ageism kind of uh, prejudice sh is slowly changing thank you and then mm. the gentleman up in front here has a question thanks uh, good evening Bronwyn. Could I ask um, if you've got a view on the rating agencies? Um, they didn't, like everybody else, they didn't forecast the global financial crisis of 2008. Have they upped their game since? And should we be relying on their views on the global economic world? Thank you. So let's go with those three questions for now. Change. Did I ever look back and was it the right path? Um, not later in my career. But definitely, okay, so this, this one big mistake I made, I mean, I made others, but this was the one big mistake, going to the city. So when I was at um, Master Foods, M&M Mars, when I said I was going to resign, um, at that stage, um, Master Foods is a, it's a it's Mars, actually. It's a private company. They make Mars bars and Milky Way and all that sort of thing. For people, Some people might not know. And at that stage, Forrest and John Mars ran the company. And Forrest Mars sent someone over to London to talk to me to stay at Mars because I was on their fast track. Mm. And I thought, oh, you know, 
I've already resigned, I should go. <laughs> so I can tell you a year later, <laughs> I was thinking, why did I resign and why did I go? Yeah. And, you know, I could have had a really fantastic career with a fantastic company. But, you know, you can't look back. You make the decision at the time. The next one wasn't, it was just, it was the wrong decision. But actually, I recovered from that. You know, you, you learn other things, you make other decisions, and you, you can't you can't say, you know, yes, there was <laughs> that was certainly you know the first one. You know, and I, I at the time I was having children as well, so it was sort of, and I had a son, and then I had a daughter, and so it was all mixed up together. And you know, I I just sort of thought, okay, let me get through this motherhood bit as well. And so you know, you just have to be. Um, Pragmatic. I tend not to try and look back on these things, you know, just, just look forward. Um, ageing population ageism. Look, uh, actually, it was one of the things we missed because I think the big demographic changes are making are incredibly important. And I do wonder, I was just um, looking at a paper that someone had sent me about Japan mm. and how um, one of the things about the ageing population, you know, it may be responsible also for, for the deflation mm. that we've seen. So mm. I think ageing is, and, and demographic changes, and the impact they're having is coming quicker than you think. I mean, just think about the voting patterns, I think, in the UK. Mm. And I know I won't have the numbers right, but the people who vote are the older people mm. and the young people who can vote don't vote. I'm furious about this, by the way. You know, all those women, Emily Pankhurst and all these people who, you know, really, you know, work to get the vote for women and the vote generally, the idea that people don't go out and vote, I just find fairly abhorrent. But it does mean that you get big changes in, you know, so if you're a political party, you know, how do you manage your agenda? You want to get voted in? So you go to those, you, you, you know, who, who will vote for you, and that may be an older population. On the other hand, and also, look, we have this big problem, is that I'm, I'm a great believer in immigration. I come from a country of immigrants. Hmm. I grew up with a name. I'm Bronwyn Curtis now, and that sounds okay. I was Bronwyn Schlutterlein. <laughs> and I didn't think there was anything funny about it till I came to England. <laughs> okay. Yes. So, <laughs> and when I got married, I'm afraid I felt, you know, it, Curtis would be a lot easier. But I just think you need a vibrant, growing, popul young population to support it. So I, I really think immigration mm. is one of the things mm. that you have to have. Mm. So, uh, you know, uh, I think it's... You, you can't let it go too far. But there are countries... I mean, China is one of them. They'll be old before they get rich. I mean, they're getting rich quite quickly, yeah. some, some of them particularly quickly. Mm. But, you know, countries, you know, they'll, they'll just... Because of the demographic changes. Mm. So I think this is one of the big, big things going on in the world, mm. which I failed to mention. And the rating agencies, rating agencies are a lagging indicator. You just have to look at this, the incentives, I think, that the rating agencies had. The rating agencies were paid by the people they were rating um, often. So, of course, it's not that they didn't try to be reasonably independent, but it wasn't in their interests 
if you look at the incentives to to really, you know, put the right rating on these things, and they tend to be late. The market has already priced these things in. So are they better? Well, they probably are better because they're watched more closely. Are they useful? I don't think so. I think if you're in the markets, you've seen it move already well before the rating agencies are making their decisions. On the, on the ageing issue... Mm. Again, I wonder if I could uh, maybe get you to expand a little bit on, on something that you said. Um, transforming the problem that aging societies will slow down into a solution by way of immigration is, is one possible way out. Um, and in general, I think that we shouldn't have blocks to immigration because my immigrants come in, they revitalize an area, and all the good things happen. But at the same time, if as a world we view immigration as a solution, well, it becomes a zero-sum game because the fact that we become a younger society by pulling in young people from elsewhere makes other parts of the world older societies because they've sent people to us. So really, it sounds to me like the, the, the aging society problem, which, like you say, is a huge problem. It's like a locomotive that's coming towards us. We can all see it happening. None of us knows what to do about it. But it seems like one thing we should be thinking about is how we make more senior citizens engage productively in an economy. We don't think about having old people as being people that we put out to pasture in some way. We make them productive. They should still be engaged in economic life. Singapore has tried to do that by engaging older, older citizens in, in economic life. And I wonder if you know, in Western Europe and the United States we should be looking at those kinds of solutions as well. Absolutely. And I think but one of the problems is ageism as well as, as the question uh, that was as, yeah. you as you suggested yeah. is that you know it, it's hard to change people's ideas about things it mm. just it really does take take time mm. to change views and so on. getting the older more engaged I mean the, the Scandinavians of course because they had a population problem I think it was the Scandinavians and of course incentives for women to have more children mm. were put in place mm. and so that's really helped so I think you needed at both ends of the spectrum yeah, I agree I agree now I'm afraid that I, <coughs> we've reached the end of the allotted time I'm going to have to call this this formal event to a close but before I do that I just want to remind everyone that uh, this is not the end of the festivities, not least because you know, there will be other events in this In Conversation series, but also this very evening uh, there will be a drinks reception where those of you who wish to ask Bronwyn more questions, we will continue to have opportunity to do that. And this drinks reception is at the back of the venue. Now, does the back of the venue mean over there or over there? Okay, over there. All right. Where the bar is, though. Right. Where the bar is, there's drinks, and people are welcome to stay for that. Then it only remains for me to do two things. First is, I want to thank all of you, the audience, for your attention, for your presence, for being here, for all the enthusiasm you've showed in asking questions. And then I invite you to join me in thanking Bronwyn for a truly delightful evening. So thank you very much. <laughs>